Joe. Hey, Dave. How you doing? I'm good. It's good. a very special episode today. This We're is very, very much so. Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. But before we actually launch into the proceedings, I first want to talk about the fact that my son is trying to kill me. But before we talk about your son trying to kill you, we should introduce our guest. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's a really weird little left turn we took there, but it's true. <laughs> that is a very odd, sharp left. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, today we've got a very special guest here with us in the studio. Legendary Keysman for Phil Spector and Brian Wilson. You may or may not know his name, but to quote the title of his endlessly fascinating autobiography, you've heard these hands. Please, one and all, no longer tethered to Hal Blaine's beat, but now twisting in the wind on his own. Let's welcome fellow music obsessive Don Randy. Howdy. Howdy. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here, Don. Oh, my pleasure. Great, great to be here, man. All right, so now we're going to hear Dave's uh, patricide story. Yeah, Don, I need you to hear this. So, you know, I have a Dave th- almost died uh, last week. Yeah, yeah. It. So I have a uh, three-year-old son. He was two a couple weeks ago. And um, uh, I was on my inversion table, uh, and he thought it would be really funny once I got strapped in to flip me over as quick as possible. And I fell out of the inversion table, and my head hit cement. Yeah, this is actually so, worse than it sounds because uh, you've already had two, I've had two sp- neck two spinal surgeries, surgeries and I have spinal stenosis. Oh my God. So, uh, so uh, he whispered in my ear, um, uh, I, uh, this attempt failed, but I'll try again next time. <laughs> <laughs> and then I ran to the emergency room. Oh my goodness. And they actually told me that the, mach- the machinery in my neck, of which there's plenty, uh, was the only thing that kept me from either dying or becoming paralyzed. Wow. Yep. Holy moly. So My son just tries to kill me slowly by inducing heart attacks. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a more patient uh, approach to killing me. And Don doesn't even need to have his kids try to kill him because he has so many. Just the thought of it is <laughs> oh, crazy. <geez. laughs> okay, back to business. Yes. First things first. Uh, you guys at home need to know how seriously we take this shit. Now let's explain the the uh, concept of this discography. So every week we will be going through the work of a particular artist, um, kind of talking about everything in chronological order that they released. Right. And we're not just covering records. Uh, we- and in, in case of today's episode, we're talking about records that this artist worked on as an arranger and a producer and a writer. Um, we're, we're covering really everything that uh, he was involved with. Really, in any way, really. And everything gets slapped with a with a star rating between zero and five. And that allows us to come face to face with an artist's overall arc, which we love here at the show. Today, we are turning the spray cans on David Axelrod. Hip, symphonic jazz maestro turned guy who was living in a tent on the street uh, who they hip the hip hop giants of today had to track down so they could give him his checks. Amazing, pretty, pretty story. incredible, isn't Amazing it? Amazing story, know. really. Now, Don, you played on very, uh, you know, almost all of these records we're going to talk about today, or at least a, a lot of them. Yes. So uh, you're a, a valuable source of uh, information about Axelrod, who there's really not a lot out there about. It's kind of hard to, uh, when you're doing research for this episode, uh, there's not really a ton written about him. Well, he was, uh, I, when I knew him, and I first met him, he, he had just started at Capitol Records as being one of the, uh, so to speak, line producers, one of the their guys. Right, company guy. Co- company guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess the first date I did with him there was with Lou Rawls. 
carrying on. Yeah, and uh, uh, I think before that, Les McCann had been doing it for a little while, and somebody else. And but um, they brought me in, and uh, I started working for him for years after that. Right, you're on. Uh, mm-hmm. You're kind of like the default guy on pretty much. You, you know, if you usually look at the credits for the record, and you're on there. On the, most the, most things. The that big he did. chunk of it is '66 to '70. Yes, yeah. Is really like, but but you know, one of the one of the things that makes me tickled pink about having you on the show is that, uh, at least in my estimation, all of Axe's best work was done in tandem with you and or Carol Kay and Earl Palmer. Yeah, it, it, he enjoyed working with us. You guys were kind of the house trio. Yes, band. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, sometimes uh, Jimmy Bond also would play bass, uh-huh. upright mm-hmm. bass with right. him. And then there's a revolving cast of amazing guitarists, oh, guitarists right. that appear on those I, records. I think Tommy Tedesco was there most of the time, mm-hmm. but Howard Roberts uh, and. Uh, so here's the thing. There's a ton of stuff. To yeah, get we're going to go through this. So all here's what chronologically. we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to go through cursorily okay. uh, up until around '66, and then start really getting into the meat of, you know, where. Yeah. You but I'm sure some working. of these records that we're going to bring up here in this first period, you're familiar with. So, so I guess first we should go back to the beginning, uh, the beginnings of Axl Rudd's life, first which is I kind of just, interesting. I want to throw out a, just a quote that he said. This mm-hmm. seems to wrap up his entire or a nice overview. He, Axe said, uh, I like mixing the, uh, the rhythms like rock and jazz and add classical sounding strings. Nobody was doing that. I don't know why. It seemed like a natural thing to do, I thought. That basically, that seems like uh, sort of the uh, a nice commanding wrap-up of his ideology mm-hmm. music. Absolutely. He wasn't afraid to take chances, that's for sure. Yeah, He tried yeah. to try something. And they always didn't, you know, it didn't work every single time, but... He was out there to try it. He had yeah. a viewpoint. He did. Yeah. He had a style. Absolutely. So in the Axelrod story, um, violence, uh, is, uh, before the music, violence and you know street living. Yeah, were... well, he's born in 1931 in South Central L.A. He's an L.A. guy. His dad was a union organizer, kind of a radical a little bit. Well, so Axelrod was a scrappy kid. You know, he, yeah. was in a well, lot, he was in a lot he of was, fights. Apparently he was no stranger to a tire iron. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was a, a, a budding teenage delinquent. Yes. Um, but, uh, but apparently he got into these unspecified troubles. And right. I, Tried to find out exactly. What yeah, there's a lot of kind of references that he was like living hard at a young age. And but like, he, you know. he left L.A. in the in uh, the early 50s, went to New York, and uh, that was kind of what what saved him. Apparently, um, he he met uh, Gerald Wiggins, who's a jazz. That's kind of an early mentor to him, and that inspired him to study music composition. But I mean, he was dabbling with heroin. He was doing all these things that uh, that could have really derailed him. He, he kind of got lucky to be pulled out of that scene, and so we enter phase one of uh, Axe's discography, which is Hepcat, nineteen fifty nine to nineteen sixty eight. We start with the first record that Axe ever put his hand to as a producer, Harold Land's The Fox. You know that record, Don? I kind of know of it. Yes, I do. It's like it's good uh, West Coast hard bop. That's yeah. how I would. That's how I would yeah, yeah. Quali- so, classify yeah. that one. Uh, Land was a tenor uh, saxophonist, and it, it's pretty much a pretty straight ahead, no frills hard bop jazz LP. It's you sounds know. good though. Well yeah, produced. Yeah. Oh, I, like I, I saw them once. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I guess it must have been mid fifties towards the, the late fifties at a, a place uh, called Jazz City, and Harold Land. Well, Harold Land was a 
a California guy. Yeah, he was he, on a he, lot he, of dates West that you were on, West, right? West Coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He played yeah. with like Max Roach too. He played. Yes. He played with some big band leaders. Um, so then, in in nineteen sixty, anyway, I gave that four stars. That record. Oh, sorry, I didn't rate it. I give it three stars. <laughs> <laughs> um, in late sixty three, Axelrod joins Capitol Records as an A and R guy and a producer. First kind of thing out of the gate that he does, uh, Donna Lauren. So <laughs> Donna Lauren uh, was the Dr Pepper girl for five years in the sixties. And uh, she was on Shindig, and uh, uh, she was in Beach Party. She was signed to Capitol in 64, uh, released a few singles, and the Beach Blanket Bingo LP soundtrack. So a good comp, if you want uh, an overview, is Beach Blanket Bingo, the very best of Donna Lauren. But there's a few singles that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, Blowing Out the Candles in 1964. Uh, beautiful, dramatic. Yeah, that has kind of sort of a little bit of a, the Axelrod sound to it. Those but very kitchen of, sinky. Yeah, it's it's but it has some kind of melodrama. It's like teen melodrama kind of right. pop but stuff. But the production is definitely dressed to impress, but not <laughs> not in a way where you're annoyed. I, by I it. hear from her on 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 Facebook all the time. You she do? Is. Yeah. Yeah. So the is. interesting thing about her yeah. is that uh, at the end of '68, she left show business to marry and raise a family. And you go, oh, too bad. That, what a burgeoning career she could have had. But she married Lenny Warnaker, <laughs> the president of Warner Brothers, and had three children, Joey, Anna, and Catherine. Yep. I work so, with Joey from time to time. He's a friend and colleague and an amazing musician in this. Okay. I worked for Lenny on his first first production dates. Um, I'm trying to read Lola Falana. Oh, wow. Nice. You remember that? Her? I do, yeah. yeah. She was I terrific, do. actually. That was I the had, first uh, I had no idea Joey's mom was a... Uh, pop star yeah she was really and the dr pepper girl and not only that but i mean these singles are are, are good they're pretty cool i i give them like in a general way i kind of it's a little bit diminishing returns as far as i'm concerned some of them are um kind of like specter knockoffs there's that one uh, just a little girl it's very much like leader of the pack kind of it yeah, has yeah. Same kind of like just a little girl's the beast set up blown out the candles. a little bit That's pastiche on, on the on the on the specter stuff but um pretty good comp though I didn't yeah. really give this one a rating. If you kind of want to flip through it, um, what's the name of the comp again? Pretty uh, much everything the, is is on there that you need. Yeah, all the stuff that you need is on our playlist. Yeah. Forget about the comp. Yeah. Kind of interesting listening, knowing that Axe um, had produced it. So you totally. kind of hear a little bit of his touches on it a bit. And he also, we're going to kind of skip through some of this stuff just because there's so much stuff. Okay, Cannonball Adderley. Uh, we're going to kind of do this as a grouping. Okay, we're going to get to a, a certain song of his later on, but... Cannonball um, Axe was a producer uh, with, from 64 to 74. Um, during that whole time, I really just want to mention briefly one record, Mercy, 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 Live at the Club, which has Mercy, Mercy, Mercy on it, written by Joe Zawinul, which became a surprise hit. That's a great record if you want to just you know, start to peek into what Cannonball was about, especially... Uh, with his years with Axe. Yeah, you must have played on some of those, right? Some of those Cannonball I, records? I, I did, never played with... He had kind of his own band, band. I think yeah, you were on some Mostly of them, New York guys. Yeah. But I, I worked with Cannon and Axe on uh, Leda Mabulu, the right. uh, African... We'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that but I was, I was a fan of Cannon, man. The, right the records the they made yeah. together, the records they made um, that Axelrod made with Cannonball Adderley, it, it's, it's a long and fruitful collaboration, and there's, there's a bunch of interesting ones in there. Um, you could really probably do a whole episode of this show just totally. on, yeah. on That's why I'm kind of skipping past it, because so, it's, um, it's there's, so huge. There's uh, one really cool record. It's called Accent on Africa that they mm-hmm. made in that period. Yeah. That one in particular, 
Blue, I really recommend. From 68, right? Yeah. Um, and um, there's, a, there's, there's a comp uh, called Walk Tall, the Axelrod Years. That's a really good sampler of just some of the different kinds of things they did. They made, made a couple of records where they were doing kind of live in the studio and made it sound like a club where they had like a live bar. Mm-hmm. Were you at any of those, Don? No, I was not. <laughs> you weren't at the live bar? No. <laughs> so that's it's kind of cool, it's sort of kinda the go, it's kinda the like Beach a Beach Boys, Boys party. party, right? It's yeah, kind of yeah. like the same, same yeah. idea where they're same trying idea. to create that, you know. Instead night, of potato chips, there right. was probably yeah. hard, hard booze and yeah. jazz cigarettes. Yeah, it seems like a pretty groovy uh, place to be at. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. That stuff is amazing, and I don't go too into it because it's a whole world. World unto itself. Yeah, but there, I, you know, I definitely check out the comp, the Walk Tall comp. It's on on streaming and everything. It's on Spotify. And then, and and then uh, Lou Rawls, uh, similarly, there's just not enough time to go into Lou um, with his his axe years. A few songs that we're going to throw on the playlist Love is a Hurting Thing, Your Good Thing is About to End, I Can't Make It Alone, and then the 1970 recording of You've Made Me So Very Happy, which. To be honest with you, I hate the original, <laughs> but the piano on that was sampled on De La Soul's I Am, I Be, mm-hmm. and it's an incre- it's really an incredible version of the song. The Lou Rawls period with Axelrod, I think you're right, it's similar. It's kind of a long and fruitful collaboration. There's a lo- I think there's like 15 or more records from those it's, years. It's a ton there's of a lot stuff. Of them. A lot of, you know, they there's some pretty interesting interpretations of the hits of the day. The, the, mm-hmm. His version of um, For What It's Worth is my favorite. I okay. like. I think I like it better than the Springfield. <laughs> well, really, well, it's. Yeah. It's. I. I wonder if it's a. I. You know. I couldn't find sessioned information for that. I wonder if that's Earl Palmer on drums on that. Whoever's yeah. playing drums on it is kicking all sorts well, of ass. He's Earl did most of. of if Axe produced it, I. I it would, sounds like Earl to me. Yes. But yeah. I couldn't find an official credit. But so uh, so things are getting things start to get kind of axelrotty like. In other words, identifiably Axel Ruddy, where he's putting his stamp on stuff yes. with David McCallum. So yes. uh, David McCallum is an uh, actor. Um, he was Ilya Karyakin on The Man from Uncle. And guess what? His son played at the Baked Potato last night. Oh, oh cool. cool. Val McCallum. That is awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. So there were, there were four records uh, that were released between 66 and 68. Music, A Part of Me. Music, a bit more of me. <laughs> Music, it's happening now, and McCallum. <clears throat> um, what people didn't really know about McCallum is that he initially wanted to go exclusively into music, and that he was classically trained. Uh, these records are a combination of kind of awkward hits of the day, but then these incredible originals that are mainly tucked at the end of the record. So on this first one, Music, a part of me, you have um, <clears throat> Insomnia written by McCallum and The Sugar Cane written by Axelrod that are really kind of, you know, that first notion yeah, of that. These records to me, you know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, it's like easy listening on steroids kind of, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like easy listening, but like kind of like a little extra kick to it, you know? Um, the... Uh, a little more inventive. That's yeah, a little more. Yeah. Exactly. There's some. There's some like cool funky drumming on it. It's a little. It has a little bit more like you know balls than yeah. <laughs> typical yeah, easy, yeah. Li- easy listening records. It's uh, it's kind of past the age of where the space age bachelor pad thing was popular. This is like more than the '60s, but it's kind of in that same. Like you could picture Austin Powers throwing this record. Totally, on totally. I mean, it sounds like bitch and cocktail hour song. This is no, so this is not a bad thing. This is no, this no, no. Is no the, this I is like a good this thing. Part of it. Yeah. No, it sounds like a close cousin to Dave Grusin's work on the Graduate yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. I remember uh, the first time I saw him 
I don't know, I think it was Ilya Karyakin from, uh, what was it, Man From Uncle? Man from Uncle, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he, he was delightful, though. He was a good man, nice man. So there's gems on all of these. Um, yeah. We will, we will definitely, and, and there's a really good compilation called The Edge. And um, there's also an even better compilation called Our Playlist. Right, right. <laughs> a really good one. Yeah. So we'll we'll uh, pluck the gems from the from the McCallum records for you for the on the playlist and they're um, the McCallum stuff is the ramping up, like he was starting to get a sense that oh I can do this thing, but then when the concepts came later and when that core rhythm section locked in, then it gets crazy. So we'll get yeah. there, but I, I uh, think he felt comfortable at that point that he could start trying for his own arranging and his own composing stuff. Yeah, I think he was just coming into his own right at that. And point. I think, do you think Capital at that time sees him as like this is working, this is successful? Or uh... I tell you what, I have, I have Capital Records. I mean, they, they were always like on the edge of not doing something. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, I can't. I wish I could say they were anxious to do anything. They everything always had a, a dollar price with right. them. They were kind of what can you bring? What can you bring to? Do, right. But mind you, David Axelwood was bringing in the hit records, so they had to give him the respect right. for what he wanted to do. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure a number of times that happened. So that particular record, I give two stars. We're talking about part of me. Yeah, I give that one. I give it three. These kind of go in descending um, order for me. That one yeah, starts they as, do. They that do one for starts me too. As, I give that one a three. Um, so then we're in 1967. Uh, McCallum re- uh, releases music a bit more of me. Basically, the you know his material again is shunted off to. But the there's end the, of the one great time. song, which is the edge. The edge, which is really kind of like um, very much the full Axelrod experience. hundred uh, percent comes into sharp focus on this song. Uh, that's easily the best song on the record. And probably made him God knows how much money because Dre sampled it for the next episode and other songs, probably a laundry list of other songs. Uh, yeah, that's it's a very, it's a, a very commonly sampled song. Um, you can't help but hearing it and think la da 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 da. Yeah. It's the motherfucking D O double G. That's right. I'm <laughs> sure Don can't help but think of that too. <laughs> that's funny though. That's right on. <laughs> There's a couple other really good songs on it. Final, uh, written by H B Barnum. I know who you're uh, yes. close with. It's got some juicy drum breaks in it. It's a little bit old fashioned strip clubby. But there's enough axolotisms in it to make it worthy of being on the playlist. This is what, 68 now? 67. 67. Okay, yeah, so Don, yeah. you haven't really started working with Axe yet at this point. It's the yeah. following year, right? 68? Yes. I, I, I actually was working for HB, I think, before I was working for Axelrod. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this one I give two and a half. I this gave one. this one two and a half. I think okay. each one I descend a half star. Okay. Spoiler alert. So then, uh, 67, David McCallick music, it's happening now. And this one, honestly, there's, uh, there's only one song that is a true keeper. And again, this is more preserving the stuff that um, is for Axelrod fanatics because the rest of it is just like covering the tunes of the day. It's not, it's not really as timeless. But Yeah, those to me, like I was saying before, are kind of less interesting. But, the, but the, uh, there's some House there's of Mirrors. amazing breakbeat, uh, yeah, a great 6-8 yeah. breakbeat on that. House of Mirrors, DJ Shadow sampled for Dark Days, an incredible song. Uh, otherwise, the cover choices are kind of unimaginative, I thought. Um, and the partnerships t- seems to have run its course directly into the ground. It's getting a little point. less like groovy bachelor pad to me and more like kind of like we live in the suburbs with a nice lawn. Exactly. <laughs> kind of, you know, it's exactly. more adult 
part of the adult contemporary uh, end of the spectrum. But then we get, we're still in 67, now we're, we're at Leta Mabulu. Leta Mabulu sings is the record from 67. She's a South African jazz singer uh, whose first two records were produced by Axelrod after uh, she left due to apartheid. Uh, Don, this is an amazing record. It is, and it was so much fun doing, uh, to, just to listen to that whole concept of, of her voice. And then HB did some great charts for her, and I think Axe might have done some of those for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's an immensely charismatic vocalist. Like her vocal, uh, just the, the, it, she's a true soul singer. You know, she it's, it really comes from the heart. I feel like her vocals. Um, you know, she had you know, she fled South Africa and kind of hooked up with some expats from there in New York. Hugh Masekela and Miriam Makeba. Mm-hmm. They all they had all kind of fled uh, the situation in South Africa, and. Um, so John Garren's the drummer on this record, is that correct? I think so. Yeah, yeah I that think was, so. It was, it was, I had to really dig to find the, the, the players on this, but according so. to what I found, he's listed as the drummer. So I, I really love, love these two. My love favorite song on the first album is Pula Yetla, the one with the uh, the rain in the background. Yes. Um, my Son is Gorgeous. It's very What's consistent. What's the, the one where she does the click sounds on, on uh, you hear her do that... I think there's a couple well, where she does. I think she doesn't yeah. have Pula yet, though. There, I think there's one though yeah. that's uh, I think an authentic uh, um, from one of the tribes. It's it's amazing. Wow. The blend of the African style and then the Western style of playing it really works. It totally works. Yeah. You would think it would be uh, sort of like uh, I don't know armchair xenophobe weirdness. There's a lot of attention not. to the arrangements too. I feel like on that record, it feels yeah. like it feels like very like a lot of uh, care was done with the arrangements. Everything kind of builds nicely. I, I think Cannon had something to say about that too. They were they were careful with it, you know. So I know he gave gave HB a lot of ideas yeah. about where it should go. That, this record has held up really well to me over the years. I think it still sounds really great now, and it's kind of I think underappreciated. I, I agree, and I think she should have been a superstar. I absolutely. I, that, that's another one of our business wonderments, you know. Yeah. yeah. She should have been the, the tops, yeah. you know. Yeah, she had what it took. I thought, and the she songs could, and were she amazing. could entertain too. Yeah. She was personable. But you know? really, what it was, Joe, I think, really hit on it, which is the combination of what she authentically brought without it being watered down, yet still be laid atop this uh, pop foundation. It worked. Yes. Yeah. It worked. I give this one three stars. I give this one four. Okay. I found this to be really super listenable. The next um, one I like a little bit more. Free Soul uh, has more highlights, I think. Uh, but they're both great records. I would give this one three and a half. I gave, I gave this one the same, three and a half. Yeah. It's so hard to find out um, information on this. I'm kind of like yeah, uh, yeah. being trying to be detective on because I, I was really into this. I'd never, I had a couple of these songs that were on one of those comps that I, it's been in like my iPod for 20 years or whatever. So I knew that the, the, those couple of songs. Yeah, yeah. But most of this was all new to me, I, and I was really impressed. I, I think some of them were based on authentic... Like folk songs. Folk songs right. of, of that, you know. And, and I think he might have just put his name on it. This right. was the first thing that I heard, notwithstanding Cannonball and Rawls, where I was like, holy shit. Yeah. yeah this was, new, this was yeah. new for me on this go-around. I, I yeah. was not really that familiar. Most of these Axelrod records I knew very well before doing this episode. Let's get this, this one out of the way, too. In 68, he does one final McCallum record with, frankly, no standouts uh, called McCallum. Uh, I give that one one and a half stars. Same. Yeah. See? All right, we're synced up. Now we're at the end of phase one. Phase wow. two. Cosmic Triggers and Crate Diggers, 1968 to 1970. So around this time, Axe uh, started working with a regular group 
of leading session musicians, including the man sitting in front of me, Howard Roberts, Carol Kay, and Earl Palmer. Well, like, even on that second uh, Let Em Mabulu album, I mean, it's uh, you know, it's Don, Earl Palmer, Ray Pullman, Carol Kay, Mike Melville, right, Al Casey. Right. You just uh, maybe maybe think of. Uh, a great funny story that I have to share with you on a Lou Rawls date that Axel was producing and Howard Roberts playing guitar and, and uh, Earl, of course. <laughs> and I think, pardon me, I think Jimmy Bond was the bass player. But the second, there was always two or three guitars sometimes, and one of them happens to turn up to be Jerry Cole. Jerry Cole was a country hillbilly player, nothing like any of the other guys play, but he also was a guy who always wanted to impress everyone with his playing, and he could play. He was a monster player. But you know, Howard Roberts is a very laid-back guy. He's used to Tommy Tedesco or Dennis Budemir, but neither of them could be there for the date. So we took a break, and I was sitting right behind the guitars. You're going to love this show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting there, just a piano player, just sitting back there. I was playing the Wurlitzer at Capitol, that Wurlitzer piano. And we're on a break, and I, they didn't get up. They're just sitting there. Howard's just sitting there. And Jerry Cole decides that he's going to impress Howard Roberts. And he starts ripping with the guitar going up and down, you know. And Howard's just sitting there. And, and I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting for Howard to react, and he never does. And finally, and Jerry hits one of those power chords and out and sits back down. And Howard turns around and says, where'd you get that strap, Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> and I lost it. I was behind there. So, so during this time, uh, it's not just the players coming together. It's it's a few things happening at once. That you know, as a, as we're ingesting all this work, all of a sudden, <clears throat> Axe, this guy who's uh, just a really good jazz producer, all of a sudden uh, takes on a higher station because now he's coming to the table with these lofty concepts, plus. This really interesting thing happens with the electric prunes. So as Axe starts to conceive his own ideas musically, um, involving all these new themes, the R&B rhythms, the Baroque classical stuff laid on top, um, he comes across the electric prunes. The Electric Prunes are a really good garage band. Garage I think so. Side. Yeah, they're good on their in their own on their own right. In they're, their own they're, right, they're, they're pretty they're, good. Yeah, they're, yeah, yeah, like their first two records. I like. I'm a, I'm a fan, but of course I'm a sucker for psych of any kind. Um, but their previous album, Underground, uh, was not incredibly successful. Uh, the first one's really the really great one. Yeah. The, the, the first one's better than the second one. And then I the, disagree. I like the first one. I, I love Underground. Yeah. Uh, is it, is that, which one was I had too much to... That's on the that's first the record. First one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's the two yeah. singles. There's that and uh, Get Me to the World on Time. So their producer, Dave Hassinger, who's all over everything in, the, in L.A. in the he, 60s... It, he his, was an engineer. At, uh, that's how we started. His, his Lenny Poncher, who was the band's manager, <laughs> and Passenger, they owned the rights to the band's name. So they basically were like, well, let's kind of take the ship over and see where, where you know, how things go. And the band had no idea. They didn't know how to read music. All of a sudden, here come not only these incredibly complex music ideas, but here comes a producer saying we want to do it all in Greek and Latin. Yeah, they're like, they're li they're like liturgical chants. That's yes. right. kind of the idea. Right. And so... <clears throat> like, you know, you go to church and it's like, homo deus, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so uh, Axe did not produce this. He wrote and arranged it. But Mass in F minor is definitely a what-the-fuck classic. 
I think it's an amazing record. It, um, it was a breakthrough for for rock and roll, really, and and for so to speak for the classical entrepreneur who who hated rock and roll. Right. They could almost say, "Oh, I may, maybe I like this." You know. Yeah, yeah. I love every song on the record. Kyrie became a surprise <laughs> underground hit because of because of uh, Easy Rider. Yeah. But uh, you know, interestingly, to think that. It was seen to be that this would be a successful touring yeah, that, thing. That's, that's, well, the funny thing in, in the first place is like, hey, well, this last record tanked, so we're going to go in a different direction. So we're going to make this really avant-garde thing with monk chanting on it. Hey, the, didn't they? They got the cover of Life Mag, one of the biggest magazines of all of, of, for yeah. the Katie Liaison. Like the this, the sense of scale of ambition of uh, is, it was is impressive to me that that's what, that was the that was their idea of how to take it more commercial. I mean, he didn't produce it. It was Hassinger. He didn't um, produce it, but I really feel like it's really his record. His record. He's really yeah, the, auteur. Totally. You know, he's that, the auteur of the that, record. Uh, really. That album had quite a lot of extensive orchestral stuff, you know, yeah. with the French horns and the strings on it. And the choir. There was a choir that sang on that also. The impossibility of oh. making records like that oh, today. Oh, I know. It's, Forget about well, it. Well, and, and yeah, exactly. They just wouldn't even bother. Everyone you got to have, you gotta have a movie now. budget to do that. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, this is uh, an incredible incredible record it is the birth of the axelrod style notwithstanding a few stray tracks on mccallum records do you know the story of the live performance of that yes we do yes we're going to talk about that <laughs> yeah we're very excited to talk about yeah it. yeah Let, why don't you tell us first of all it happens at a high school this is the premiere of the latin and greek version of the electric and it's, from what i can understand it was sort of a proof of concept sort uh-huh. of concert it's like let's see if this will work let, let me tell you so i wish you guys could have been there yeah because you 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 will love the music and you're into it and you would have you would have just been in my position i mean very easily so, so you're kind of like you're tasked to sort of md this thing is that right? Uh, right yeah so they they put me in a bowler hat and a cape well to be fair you <laughs> owned the bowler hat i did I, yeah. <laughs> I did own it. and they got me a cape and they had i think it was six or eight voices of i let me preface it but we were at culver city high school and this was like a you know an experiment, and and the the high school auditorium is packed, and they the curtain is drawn, and the kids are there, and we have the band, and and uh, we start, and they're doing Kyrie Eleison, and we're, we're I'm conducting it, and and you could hear a pin drop, and then all of a sudden the lead singer hits a note that only God could hear, and my dog. <laughs> And and then from there, it was a disaster. It got worse and worse. And then some some kid hollers up. be a recording. Somebody hollers up. Too much to dream. And the next thing I know, here comes two beer bottles full of beer, and they break right in front of me on the stage in a million pieces. The kids, the 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 choir, they're they're running off stage. Their their history right then and there. And then here comes the principal. And he pulls the curtain on us, kicks everybody out, and I'm standing there. And I think Earl Palmer said to me, "He says we better get the fuck out of here." Now. <laughs> <laughs> and we and we got out of there. But that was, you know, they were serious about. Yeah. And, you know, the odd thing about that whole this whole conversation is, had they been able to pull it off, mm-hmm. can you imagine where that would have gone? What they would have broke. The, uh, they would have broke every record, every place. What were the yeah. rehearsals like for that? Could they do it in rehearsal? We tried. Mm-hmm. We tried. Mm-hmm. We so, tried. so the rehearsal was a fail as well. Yes, it, we knew that, but yeah. it, it got better for a little bit, but it not 
not much. But but the these, re- these the songs are really so complicated. Yeah, to play. yeah. Some of them have a lot of time shifts you know, and like. Sure, do you yeah. do you listen to this one? Is this one that pops up in your listening pile? Have you I, heard it recently? No, no, no. It no, really, I, really stands up. Oh, it, it is. It's it's excellent. And I think Axe did a great job on it. I give you it know, five stars. You know, he did. He put his whole soul into this thing. How many he stars went, you give this? I would give it five. Yeah, I give yeah. it four and a half. But you could talk me into five. Yeah, I you think know, you should give it five. <laughs> I, you know what? I, I would give it ten on the challenge. Yeah, you yeah. know the I'm challenge. Sorry, that's of, not how our rating system. Works. <laughs> you, you know, can you imagine? Hey, listen. Put yourself in a producer's position. Somebody walks in with a record like that. What are you going to say? Here I have a, a, a record by the Everleys I could put out, or I could put this out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Come on. Yeah. But they, back that. But back then, uh, it was entering a time in the music industry and the film industry yes. where the suits threw up their hands and said, "Okay, maybe we don't know." Yeah. So yeah. then they started letting shit like this through the gate, and sure. that's when everything got interesting. Because also, um, he really kind of has the uh, he has a certain kind of style that this sort of dramatic, sort of like masculine style of horn arranging. <laughs> you know, yeah, these like kind of like robust low brass, and like you're kind of starting to hear that kind it's of called, called unison writing, right? And, and he right. spreads it out, yeah, mm-hmm. octaves, fifths, and that's it. Yeah, uh, he doesn't really do. Too much. It's not like there's not a lot of like counterpoint no, or no, anything like no. that. But it's but it's this very kind of like a robust like. He's kind of like you could picture it as a piano, right? And he uses from the bottom note in the bass mm-hmm. to the top note in the treble, right? Right. And fills it in, right? And everything happens in you know. Seems like he's almost sort of influenced by maybe some film score music yeah, at times. Was, yeah, a lot of his stuff has a very so. cinematic. Well, I um, do know he loved Lalo Schifrin, that's right, for uh-huh, sure. You right. know, so he loved. Yeah, way. you can hear some of that. Like uh, he's thinking of it in kind of cinematic sort of yeah. way. It has a sort of wide. I hear screen. some Bernard Herrmann in there too. Oh, that's one of my favorite. But he's really getting that going on this record, and that sort of becomes like the dominance. What's your favorite Bernard Herrmann thing? Uh, I love the piece called Atlantis on Journey to the Center of the Earth. I like the movie he did, Taxi. Oh, Taxi Driver? Mm. Taxi. Love the score for that. Love theme from Vertigo. That's great. great. But there's, there's a good lesson like that. You know, if you're a young person studying arranging and everything, listen to that stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Taxi Driver is the quintessential, like, lonely, like, dark end of an alley playing a sax <laughs> thing. It really is. Um, then he, then Axe took a biz, strange little Before detour. we move on from Mass and F minor, um, this is another one where it's hard to, to exactly pinpoint who's playing, especially the lead guitar. But there's some amazing lead guitar. Oh, in all those fuzz minor. shreds. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, just like really incredible playing. I think maybe Richie, could, Richie Podolore, maybe? It could be, it could be Mike Dacey. Right, yeah. Okay, see, yeah, some yeah. Of this, a lot of times they're just listed on the same session. Because he liked, really he liked Mike that. Dacey, which surprised yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Because Mike Dacey was, was the out guy, you know, he... For the acid rock, he was they right, bring right. him in for that for that type. Thing. It's almost yeah. kind of like how uh, he would put bands together the way like Ellington would or something. I need this guy for this. I need this guy to do that. I need yeah, this. Well, you know. and and that was admirable. You know. Yeah. You know. You know what you want. You go yeah. for it. Why not? Yeah. Especially if you can get it. Um, so Hardwater, he did this album with this band that was pretty undistinctive, uh, which has almost none of the classic Axelrod stamp to it. Uh, the band is called Hardwater. They're kind of Buffalo Springfieldy. <clears throat> uh, there's a couple songs we're going to put on the playlist: Monday and Not So Hard. Um, but this is a strange album for him because 
he was in the midst of dominating another band, basically, and making them his own. And then here comes this other band that's not even that great to begin with. Um, and he's not puffing his chest out and dominating the scene here. So it just comes off like a few dudes who live in their parents' base, basement yeah, it so- it sounds and kind dream of, of being the Standells. It sounds kind of regional to me. I give it two and a quarter stars. A quarter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we're moving on I give on your to... quarter a star, zero stars. <laughs> okay. I gave uh, Hardwater two stars. Uh, it sounds like one he was just kind of pressing record and getting the, that's getting, basically getting the thing, it. getting, getting it over a paycheck. with. Yeah. So two months after that, we have Song of Innocence. Oh, boy. Okay, October 68. This is... Um, why don't you describe it, Joe? The, the concept. Yeah, well, it's it's based on a cycle of William Blake poems. Um, it's a sort of a loose kind of theme. I think the, to me, the theme of it is really in the the way the music is written. It's it sort of has a wide eyed. I mean, it's, it's the, the album's called Song of Innocence, and it does have a sort of wide eyed kind of optimistic sound to me. Um, the way the William Blake bit of it comes across to me is it's sort of a yearning sort of feeling. Um, not really a, a strict concept album like some of his later ones. Right, um, and, and also without beating you over the head uh, yes. with, with the concept it's more of or a, the It's theme. more of a feeling that, a feeling. that, that, that a he's trying to yeah. get across, I feel like. And it's like. a very strong feeling. I'll tell you what, he gets some, some of the moods of, of those that album are, I mean, they're, they're so wonderful. I mean, Absolutely. You don't have to go... I mean, they were never touched again. It's like yes, its yeah. own album. There's no other... Well, you, you see, I, I asked Axe one time, I said, why don't you perform it? I said, why don't you do some of this stuff live? He said, well, well, you'll have to conduct it, you know. He, it was just not Axe, you know. Right. So I said, what's the sense? I mean, Axelrod was more passive than that when it came to his own stuff. I, he, he got to do that uh, by the end of his life. I mean, in yeah. 2004, he had that uh, Royal Labyrinth yeah. Hall show. Yes. And he used all of the hip-hop sample money yes. to <laughs> hire <laughs> tremendous orchestras. Yeah, yeah. Fuck maybe you, maybe I, to me, also "Song of Innocence" is a step up, and just how um, everything is very uh, all the loose, the rough edges are kind of sanded off, so it doesn't have the like the uh, pr- the prunes are still kind of psych and kind of freak out style, yeah. where there's a precision to "Song of Innocence." Everything is like right in its place, and it's a little bit more meticulous in the way it's crafted. Well, uh, Did you get that sense, Don, when you yeah. guys were making it? Well, yeah, and you know something interesting that Capital did do. They let him have his budgets. Those were expensive albums. There are thirty-three mm-hmm. players. You know, on this those record. those were not you know easy albums to do. And right. they, and he did take his time doing them. I mean, it's not like he took months, but we took our There's time. A good amount of rehearsal yeah, involved yes, in getting yeah, that together. Yeah, get it right. One of the interesting things about this record is that there's all these sort of cod psych records that are coming out around this time, like the Zodiac, and it's basically suits trying to deliver psych messages to kids who are too smart to fall for it. Uh, and this could have ended up like that. This could have been like a sort of cod psych piece. Instead, it has so much heft and weight to it. Um, it, it is, uh, in my mind, a perfect All record. Right. I have to stop you. <laughs> I, I have a, a, a theory. Somehow, I mean, when you try to analyze all this stuff and, and, you, and you accept it, you can't really intellectualize it too much, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's it, it's not, it's it's a very basic, simple form that he uses, that becomes what you make it. Right. I mean, sure. it, it's it, it's not like he's writing counterpoint and he's he's all over the place with the string lines. He's not. He loves whole notes. Yeah. He loves to you know whole notes over and over again to make a point. 
I, f- I forget the song. I'm trying to remember. Was it Crazy Lady, something like that, that Axel Rod Strange wrote? Strange Ladies? Str- or something. That I take a wild piano solo in it. Mm-hmm. And, and that one got sampled, mm-hmm. and Axel got the check for that. I didn't. <laughs> no, but, but it's, it's like that, where he knows, I have this thing going on now, and now I'm going to jam it. You know, this is the time when we need to do something. But he's clever that way. He knows when to do it and when not to do the it. sense of know? dynamics, yeah. Uh, what was it? Uh, um, Ernie Watts, great saxophone player. We had been doing this one section over and over and over again with whole notes for the horn section so that they almost couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. You know, they would do that. And we did it for about an hour and a half. And finally, Axe said, I got it. Thank you. And Ernie stood up and said, Axe. And he says, what, Ernie? He says, I used to pay a lot of money to feel this way. <laughs> and, you know, they were hyper, They were hyperventilating, obviously. Yeah, I yeah. mean, when you're holding and <laughs> being a horn player and – and it's tied, and it's tied, and it's tied, but he got what he wanted. You see, yeah. yeah. So on "Song of Innocence," also another one with the great lead guitar playing. For my my sleuthing tells me that maybe some of that is Al Casey. It could Al Casey work for him sometimes? But uh, um, you sure it's not Tommy Tedesco? I don't think Tommy Tedesco is credited on this record. That doesn't mean he didn't play on it though, because yes. sometimes it's spotty trying to trying to figure out who played it. It could on be what. Al if Al's credited on yeah, it. Then, then, yeah, then he would must have been Al. It's really you know it's a record that sounds of its time. It has those like it has those great '60s sounds, those yes. great those great room all the great room sound the strings, but it also still sounds futuristic even now. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it, this and this became the, the album itself just became a cottage industry unto itself. The palette just, of sounds is amazing. Yeah. I mean, just the ride symbol is like a symphony in itself. You know, the the bass guitar tone which is all, all the tones you know really that's something incredible. interesting that you just said i think axelrod understood the capitol studios better than anybody else that would come in there yeah i think incredibly hi-fi yes i mean just yes. impossibly hi-fi he, he understood it very well he knew how to how to manage that room you know yeah. this but, one is a easy five-star record yep, i mean it's five, total stars, five stars for me total classic every note is perfect i mean the sequencing is great every song kind of flows into the next song just the right way if i had to pick a favorite it would be the title track but you need every song on it and holy thursday itself probably god knows how much money he made just off that song yeah they also he gets a lot of mileage i feel like out of carol's bass but she'll play like fours and fives in the bass and sort of add that kind of tension and ambiguity really like exploits that uh really brilliantly and a lot of his records but this one especially yeah, I mean, um, when it just uh, devolves down into uh, Carol and Earl playing on the record, it's outstanding. It's special, isn't it? They, it really they, is. They really work well together. They it's, did. It, it's my favorite bass playing she's ever thrown down, ever. Yes, yeah. Yeah, on his, records, really on his records in general. She she, you know, you know now, that, now that I think about it, I don't think I ever saw Carol play guitar on any of his stuff. She was an excellent guitarist mm-hmm. also. Yeah. You know? And, I, and, and a lot of records have her playing guitar, but I don't think she ever played guitar in Axel's mm-hmm. uh, Rod Why don't you give her a call and ask? <laughs> yeah, right. The next month, yes. I mean, like to shove it in our faces that he's so amazing. <laughs> the next month, the Electric Prunes release of An Oath comes out. Uh, Axe only wrote and arranged this, but again, this is his record, 100%. And this is this is the classic, uh, you know, Palmer K. Randy rhythm section is the is the is the bedrock of this record as well. Yep. You know where we did this at, at American Recording, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. You know how you know this this record means business. 
because typically liner notes in the 60s were just like a whatever. The liner notes on this album <laughs> describe the record uh, as, as a setting of a service intended to release a penitent from an oath made under duress and in violation of his principles. <laughs> That's fucking intense. Okay, so... Okay. Uh, this one, it seems like they're kind of going... There. He's doing the... Uh, he's kind of trying to expand on the mass and F minor sound, I feel like. I think it's, it's better. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's a I, I, like, I, like, I do like this record better. Um, I, it's kind of going for some of the same uh, terrain, but it's, it's, a little bit, uh, it's a little bit tighter. It's a little bit... If I listened to it, didn't know anything about Axelrod, I would think this was a very religious person. That's that's how it comes off to me. It's like this. Wow, it's just that's very interesting. Intense. Wow, yeah. but it's probably like just his relationship to music through religion that right, was, right. was you know when he was a kid. It's like his like early things he heard that were musical. Yeah, that kind of have that influence on him. And I think he kind of appreciates like the drama totally. of, of the sort of yeah, shit, yeah. The chanting and all that stuff. You know, yeah, like, especially "Holy Are You." I mean, every every song on the album is, is yeah. So excellent. that's that "Holy Are You" is kind of the centerpiece, really, and that's one of his iconic songs. It's also been sampled. Um, it's like it's, it's and he got the Verve guy to sing it on his uh, Royal Albert Hall show. Right, right. Yeah, that one's a classic. That's a great yeah, tune. Yeah. This did, it's got all the you know all the elements how, that. Is, how did that show go? I always wondered about that. It's good. It's a good show. It I is. mean, yeah, it's uh, he's his between song patter is spot on. He comes across. You know, I've, he ne- seems like I've never I've never heard it. It's I, good. I'm going to have to check. I that have that out. on vinyl as well. Do you really? I do. Nice. Uh, this one I give a hard five to. Uh, I love this. I'm a little bit tougher. I give this one four and a half. Really? I'm wow. tough. I don't give a lot of fives. Yeah. Well, I mean, during this period. Uh, during uh, Cosmic Triggers and Crate Diggers, a lot of stuff gets five for me. So um, a year later, in October 69, we have Songs of Experience. Uh, this one is arranged, composed, and produced by Axe. Um, and it's the obviously the follow-up. It's a little bit darker because of the subject matter, which is not explicitly sung about. Right. Um, Again, it's kind of it's more of a feeling sort of like this right. one, and I. It's interesting that the one is songs of innocence and the other is songs of experience. This album has a little bit more of a, a, a it breathes a little bit more. It's got a little bit more of like kind of a, it's sort of coming at it from a place of like wisdom or something. It's a little bit. It's a slightly different emotion on on um, songs of experience. Yeah, but it's it's great though. I love it. Songs of experience to me is not quite at the level of song song of innocence. I give it four and a half stars. To me, it lays back. Uh, and is not as quite at the same level of being as commanding as Innocence, but I still love They're kind it. of a coin flip for me. I will say uh, Innocence is maybe a little bit more packed start to finish, yeah. where uh, Songs of Experience takes kind of a couple of breaths. There's kind of a couple of spots yeah. that are kind of like little palate cleanser pieces. Um, but, I mean, some of my favorite tunes of his ever, The Poison Tree, the songs are just amazing. Human Abstract. Yeah, I mean, these are all like, you know... Uh, I remember that. Yeah. Human Abstract that made is very, a pretty, That made him some money that's from a very, DJ Shadow. That's a very famous sample of your piano, Don. Yep. Midnight in a Perfect World by DJ Shadow <laughs> heavily features your piano. You familiar with that record, the DJ Shadow record? I, I, I kind of Well, am. you're on it a lot. Yeah, you yeah. are on it a lot. <laughs> and it's a great record. Yeah. Uh, so, <clears throat> did you rate that one? Did I write what? Uh, songs of Experience? Uh, five stars. Five stars? Yeah. Don, you yeah, haven't been rating. Well, I would give that one five, five, five? stars, yeah. I okay. think I like that one better than experience, uh, um, Innocence? In Songs of Innocence. I don't know why, but I remember there was... I, you know what I think it was? I think it was more relaxed. 
Yeah, it is more relaxed. The second one. You Don't remember, you? Remember this? Yeah. yeah, I do. I think so. I think it has like I think it reflects their it's, titles. It's like laid back yeah. a little bit. You yeah, know? I yeah. agree. Do you, do you remember the song "The Fly"? You play great on that. When you play, uh, the, I think it's probably a Baldwin harpsichord in that. Could very well be. Yeah, yeah. you play a great harpsichord solo on that. So I think that's the last tune on the record. So One then, of my favorites. Then we have uh, Don's record. Oh, Don nice. made Axelrod uh, produced and arranged. Don Randy plays the love theme from Romeo and Juliet, gorgeously titled. And you know what you're in for? <laughs> Every song on the record. And I'm not saying this because you're a guest on the show. I was nervous to hear it because I was like, what if I don't like it for some reason? The whole goddamn thing, you're on fire. Yeah, it's, it, it's, this is it's not a, an easy listening record. It's a no, jazz record. No, it's 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 it was fun doing too. Yeah, and then I had no idea. I loved the uh, the theme from the Fox. Yeah, but mm-hmm. that would have been it. Wouldn't have been. I didn't even know about it because you know it's one of the most beautiful things Lalo Schifrin has ever written, as far as I'm concerned. And it was a very controversial movie for for especially for that time, dealing with you know two women. Mm-hmm. You know. For, for those days, but it was done so well. It was an excellent film, but his whole score to that film is marvelous, you know. And if you go on YouTube and and you'll see how many hits, how many people have played that, my version of the Fox thing. Mm-hmm. Include, yeah, it has a lot of uh, Spotify streams. Yes, it does. Yeah. My favorite of, uh, of your playing on the record is the first track, Shay. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're just. Ferocious. That's another Lalo Schifrin. You yeah, know. you're ferocious on that. It's yeah, he let me go. Really, really one. good, man. And Carol's on that, and so is Earl, Earl Palmer on that record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Tommy Tedesco was on it also. I think my favorite might be the title track, which is uh, very, very Axelrod y. Yeah. Um, the love theme from. The, the love, yeah. Uh, really, really great drum and bass group. I have a that. great story about that. Uh, Capitol Records released mine. That's a Nino, Nino Rota tune, right? Yeah. And and Henry Mancini released his. Oh right, right. I read at the same book. time. Yeah. Yep. And Capital David Axel, I was really pissed off. He says they won't let me give me the money to fight him. I said, What do you mean? He says, Come on, it's you know you got to get your radio play. We got to come up with some bucks for airplay. Three weeks later, I'm at RCA Victor. Henry Mancini is with the orchestra next door, and I think I can't remember who it was that we were. It could have been Lauren Earl, whoever it was. Mm-hmm. We were right next door in the other studio. And we came out, and I didn't know Henry Mancini, but somebody pointed me out to him, and he came over and took my hand. He said, your version is better. That's all <laughs> nice. he said. Nice. <laughs> and he walked That's away, great. and I, I don't, I'm thinking, what is he? And then I realized, you know, yeah, Romeo yeah. and Juliet. <laughs> well, it's a killer record. I give it five stars. It's the same, you know what it is? It's like a classic uh, Axe era record, but without the huge concept. Same players, same trappings. Just more like like letting your hair down at the end yeah. of the day kind of thing. Yeah, five stars here too. And this one, um, I didn't even know this record really existed. You, you ever um, have any talk, anybody talk to you about a vinyl reissue of it at all? Um, no. No. No, not really. And people don't know about the album. That's the thing, yeah. You I mean, know, I'm even a... You and know. I'll, when I, unless somebody that comes in the club all the time wanted to know where they could get it, and uh-huh. I... And, uh, I said Spotify or, or one you, you might be able to download. If you want a copy, you can probably find it on Discogs. You know. yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it'll certainly be on our playlist, literally yeah. every song. All right, so then still in 69, Axe still has a few more records up his sleeve. Howard Roberts' Spinning Wheel, he was the producer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is a, uh, to my ear, it's a more middle-of-the-road jazz album. Uh, I would say it's a, like a contemporary 
pretty much mainstream jazz album of yeah. its time. Jazz was still selling quite a bit of records in those days. Uh, there's a couple songs from that that are going to be on the playlist. Crystal Illusions and Country Shuffle for sure. Um, this one I give two and a half stars. I gave it the same. Okay. Now, Howard Roberts was probably on some of your uh, Wrecking Crew dates, I'm sure, right? He was oh, a kind boy. of a staple, Loads right? of stuff. Yeah. 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 But and you know, Howard never he's liked. He's a West West Coast jazzer guy. He never liked rock and roll. And right. he, you ask him, he would tell you flat out, "I hate yeah. rock and roll." Yeah. 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 But you know, meanwhile, he's making his living from it, not from playing jazz. You know? Right. 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 So <laughs> the last album of '69 is is a very interesting one. There was a band called the Common People. This is like an obscure footnote in his career. But what happened was he was brought on as producer. They were sort of a moody folk rock kind of a band. And he was going to do orchestrations for them. He worked on three tracks. The three tracks are amazing. And then his wife got into a car accident and he had to leave. So the rest of the album, it goes from sounding like the most incredibly produced thing ever to a, a few dudes in their basement fucking around. So the first three songs of the record are Soon There Will Be Thunder, I Have Been Alone, and Those Who Love. Uh, and those three songs are amazing. You'll find them on the playlist. The rest of it is so inessential. That last one in particular, Those Who Love, is the one I really liked. It's kind of yeah. like a kind of a dirgy waltz kind of thing. It's kind of like rainy day psych. It's kind of it like sp- vaguely sad, melancholic it's, kind it's of psych. beautiful. But my favorites, I've been alone. But just Axe's stuff alone, I give four and a half yeah, stars. It's, it's kind of interesting. I, yeah. I, gave, uh, I, gave, I rated the whole record, so I gave it two and a half. I, uh, yeah, for the whole record, I would definitely. But if we're going just Axe, half, I guess, yeah, yeah four. <clears throat> then we're in 1970. Willie T, I'm Only a Man, he produced. Do you know Willie T at all? I don't recall the name. No, mm-hmm. I don't. he's a singer from New Orleans, R&B singer. It's a, it's a pretty cool straight ahead like R&B record. Half of it's great, uh, the first half, and the other half will do in a pinch. It has some Axelrod things on it. It has some kind of dramatic strings and like has the kind of heavy rhythm section. He liked a heavy rhythm section. He did. You know, he likes he liked stuff that had some kind of that had some booty to it. <laughs> you know, like that's why it's translated so he, he well used, into hip hop. He, he used percussionists a lot of times too mm-hmm. on his stuff. Yeah, I remember seeing Gary Coleman there. I Amo Riches with yeah. some of especially them. later into the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. The, the records kind of started to take on a more funk kind of character. Um, then we have Pride, which is interesting because. Oh, wait, what are we giving uh, Willie T? I'm only a man. Oh, I give that three stars. I give it three and a half. Sweet. Then uh, Pride. Pride is a group from 1970. Um, uh, Axelrod was co-composer with his son, and he also produced it. Uh, it's sort of a, uh, it's like an interesting try. I felt. You remember this one, Don? I have no. You idea. played on it. You're on it. Did you're on it? It's uh, it's Palmer K. Randy, Axel Axe's son. Yep, Palmer K. Randy. Oh wait a second, is this the one that that? No longer with us, the son. I, I think so. Yes, so. Yeah, yes, I, I think so. so. Yeah, Michael. Michael. All right. Is that the son who's no longer with I, us? I think so. I, I don't. It kind of has like a Mexican folk kind of vibe to it a lot. There's yep. a lot of nylon string acoustic and castanets and things of yep. that nature. It's okay. I, I unfortunately don't love it, but there's a song, "A Hope," that I like a lot, with a with a critical that, K Palmer breakbeat. That had to have been uh, that breakbeat had to have been sampled. Right? It had it's, to. Have, it's, yeah. it's really amazing. Yeah. Um, I gave it two stars. It's kind of not super essential. It's not. Uh, Then uh, we have Earth Rot. Okay, so Don Randy's all over this one. Uh, Axe is the composer and producer. Uh, The album was recorded with a choir singing from the Book of Isaiah uh, and an orchestra that included uh, Earl Palmer, Ernie Watts, Mr. Don Randy. Um, 
So Carol's gone this time. Yes. Uh, still a great record from his classic period. Uh, and you have an ecological theme to it. Yeah. Um, my uh, The only thing that I wish was different about it is I wish those voices weren't on it. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. it's perfect. I yeah. mean, the other thing that's a little weird about have you heard this re- recently at all? Doug? Not recently. Well, no. if you listen to the mix of it, the choir voices are like so loud. <laughs> the, the track is like sounds puny and tiny in the sections where the choruses sing. So th- it's just mixed very, did, very did loud. He, did he do the final mixing? Axelrod or did somebody else? I'm not else? sure. I One of a- his last wishes was to re release it without the voices at all. And he got to do that. So yeah, they just put it out. Um, who's the label that did this? It's on a really small remember. little boutique yeah. label. Oh, uh, did out. this yeah. be the one that Ethan? This is the one we were talking about that, earlier. Ethan yeah. got yeah, them yeah. to re-release. Yeah. So if any fans of the podcast, incidentally, they let us come up to Capitol and do a whole bunch of stuff sitting in, at Capitol and doing the interviews uh-huh. with Dave's wife. Oh. She came there, and it was really nice of her to for do that for this release. For this release. Right. For yeah. for. For, yeah, what do you think? It's this one and a couple other ones. I think they re uh, they also reissued. There's a uh, there's a deluxe of this that all that comes with two records. With two, yeah. yeah. To me, this is this is this and one other song are the end of an era. Uh, this album I give four stars to. I would give I give this three stars. Earth rot, an instrumental version I would probably give five stars. Instrumental would be five. I, prob- yeah, I probably would, even if they're, even if those parts with the vocals sounded kind of weird and empty with the no uh-huh. vocals. I think yeah, yeah. I can imagine a five star album. Well, he wanted it that way, which is which is a relief in thinking that. Yeah. Um, one last thing about this and the end of phase two, Tensity. Right. Tensity is an Axe original off of the Cannonball Adderley Quintet and Orchestra record. Um, which, as far as I'm concerned, very nicely and neatly buttons up Axe's Purple Patch era. Yeah. It's a great song um, filled with the trademark Axe dynamics. Yeah, it's a, it's a great blend of like actual like, real like jazz jazz and, and Axe's style. Uh, great song, classic. Definitely not be on the playlist. Essential. And that's the end of phase two. Phase three, overblown and undercooked, 1971 to 2000. First, we start off with Rock Messiah. Or just Messiah, as it says on the cover. Right. Why right. is it called Rock Messiah? Or, or it's also known as David Axelrod's rock interpretation <laughs> of Handel's Messiah. This is a, a record he did in 71. Basically, he, his motivation was to make Handel more accessible. Um, it's arrangements by Axe, played by a 38-piece orchestra conducted by Cannonball. And uh, I, we rarely quote other... Uh, other rock critics, but a writer for Ebony, Phil Garland, described the album as Jesus Christ Superstar on a Bad Trip. And I thought that was a pretty apt conclusion to have reached. That's great. It's a pretty uh, severe uh, drop-off just in quality in terms of the arrangement. What year is this? 71. 71. 71. There's also bits where, you know, the vocals are kind of, you know, musical theatery well, on I, this. What, yeah. what label was that on? It must have been Capital, right? Not sure. You're just it's trying to make Capital. I don't think so. It's credited to uh, him as the artist. Axe Ax is the artist. Yeah, it was his record company. <laughs> okay. Well, then there's no, also there's passages of it where it's just orchestral stuff, and even that stuff is kind of like more kind of like this. Uh, this is not the one where yeah. we where where it's almost the Holocaust type. No, no that's, that's a later. Way, that's, that's, later. Way, that's way yeah. later. So this one I give two stars. This is the first time where I feel like. Wow, I don't like this record. Yeah, I didn't really like this one. I gave it one and a half. Yeah. Um, you don't have to whisper it just because Don's here. I gave it one and a half. <laughs> <laughs> one and a half. 
All right, so 1972 brings the auction. Uh, Axe composed, arranged, and co-produced along with Cannonball. The auction is Axe's slavery concept album. Uh, not good. I liked it better than Messiah. I think it's a little bit, it's sort of similar in approach. It's also a little bit like musical theater style kind of. Uh, and this yeah. is sort of a period where he's getting into where things are less through composed and kind of more based around jams, I feel like. So uh-huh. there's less parts of it where it's like, here's a part of the song that goes into this. And, it's, you know, these are kind of more like kind of vamps they're playing on a lot of times. And, you know, they're all really good players. Joe Sample is the keyboard player on this. I, I think it's an attempt at trying to be current. Right, sure. Yeah, yeah right. To be a little Fusion's more... Fusion's kind of becoming more right. of a thing. Yeah, I, right? I think that's, that's probably why. Uh, John Guerin plays on this too. These guys are all really good players. You know, it's like you. It's but uh, it's not as interesting to me to listen to the stuff of his that's that is so brilliantly composed. That stuff I think kind of holds up to me. This, this these kind of things that are kind of funk jams are kind of more ephemeral. Yeah, it's, it's and, sort of and, like that's they're all really good players playing on a on a on a session date, but it doesn't have the timeless kind of thing that his best. Right, because also the insinuation of a concept uh, is one thing, but then having spoken word sections. Yeah, in your record. It, that's a whole. That feels didactic. Yeah, I bet there's some some good uh, crate digging stuff on this though. If you probably uh, you could probably find some bars that are nice. To I sample. give it two stars. I give I'm it the same two stars. Uh, Seventy three. There's nothing. Seventy four. He arranged and conducted Gene Ammons Brass Wind. Um, so I don't know. This to me sounds like porn soundtrack castoffs. Same kind of thing where it's it's sort of like it, they're jams kind of you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Again, another powerhouse band. It's George Duke, um, Garen, Carol Kay. It's kind of like, a, it seems like a contemporary jazz record of its time, kind of. What, what yeah. label was that on? I don't, I've never even heard of that, that one. I don't know. Not sure. Huh. Not sure. You're throwing us the tough questions and yeah. making us look <laughs> you know, like shit. I, I, well, I didn't know he had ever I'm done kidding. with uh, recorded with Gene Ammons, you mm-hmm. know? I give this one one and a half. I, I give really this two. Like th- th- that one to me falls... I always give two stars to records that I feel are like competent genre records, yeah, which yeah. that is to me. So Was Carol the bass player yeah, on Yeah, she's playing one? electric yeah, yeah. bass in that, yeah. Wow. And then next up is, in 74, Hampton Hawes, uh, oh. an album called Northern Windows. Uh, acts produced, conducted, and arranged. Are you on that one? That's Hampton Hawes. Hampton yeah, Hawes, yeah. yeah. He's an amazing he's piano player. Yeah, yeah. That was one of my f- influences when I first started playing. He was one of the first guys I heard that played at that little club, Sherry's. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was a amazingly wonderful. Doesn't get enough credit for how good he was. Mm-hmm. There's some good stuff on this. Uh, Carol Kay again plays electric bass on this. That's yeah. in, uh, yeah. And kind of in the Axelrod sort of style. She's yeah. sort of a recognizable voice yeah. on the record. To me. Otherwise a pretty straight jazz date, I think. I say yeah. So I'm same for me. I give this two. I mean, you could if, if this is your I give kind it of two thing. And a half. Yeah, it's it's a genre record of its time. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's there's definitely nothing wrong with it. Just, you know. Then, uh, then we're back to his solo career in '74. He released a record called "Heavy Axe," which he arranged, uh, acts, uh, arranged, conducted, and mixed. And this is sort of more on the corner type, generic street funk. No big concept, weighing it down at least. Um, but I don't know. To me, this he wasn't at Capitol anymore, was he? I, think. I don't think so. I think no. not for this one. No, no, no. I think for the last couple, I don't think he's been at Capitol. There's kind of a handful here in this period um, that are 
that have some cool things on them, but you know, aren't as great as the classic stuff. This being the this is the weakest of the three to me. I Heavy agree. X. I agree. Um, I only like the Guaraldi cover, the Cast Your Fate to the Wind. Yeah, there's a couple of vocal things in here that I'm not really into. I mean, I love George Duke. I, I really love his playing a lot. He he really plays some great like you know solos and stuff on this it's it's a it's you know it's a pretty cool funk record it's the same thing i would say about some of the other ones where it's like you know it's a it's kind of more in the jamming kind of fusion sort of space my favorite aspect of what axe does is the dichotomy and uh the way that that the 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 strings on top work with what you guys are doing on the bottom without that top it's just yeah, he, that's the other thing we me. haven't really talked about. He's kind of, this doesn't really have the strings thing, the orchestrated thing going on at all. This is a different kind of record, really. Right. I give it uh, one and a half stars. I'm not a fan. I like it okay. I gave it two and a half. I like it better than you, I think. 75, we have Seriously Deep, composed and arranged and conducted by Axe. Um, and it's got that sort of like uh, 42nd Street in New York City vibe from the 70s. Yeah. So Seriously Deep, I give two and a half stars. There's, I, I, I don't really, uh, I There's love There's some things Reverie. I like about this. So there, this one has a, uh, Joe Sample is keyboard player on, on this. And uh, he's playing a lot of, uh, it's credited as ARP synthesizer. So I'm guessing he's probably playing a 2600. It's either a 2600 or an Odyssey. Um, what, it's got to be one of those two synths and it's kind of a main character of the record so there's and this it probably kind of sounds like, like a Fender Rhodes right well there's some <laughs> stuff where it's like he's doing these sort of like kind of kitschy sounding leads that kind of have like that pew, 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 kind of oh well that, that, that could yeah. be the ARP yeah. That, yeah that's definitely the but then the, the cool stuff from it is he's play, he plays this sort of growly low bass that's this very ominous kind of like synth bass it's like boom boom this very like uh, it's kind of like gives the record kind of a, a sort of like scuzzy sort of character Character. Um, I like this one okay. There are there are parts of it that are kind of kitschy, but uh, I gave this three. And I, this yeah, scene, I give it two and a half. I liked not, it better than Heavy different. Axe. Yeah, yeah, it's it's better. Uh, then Don comes back into the fold. Thank God. Uh, Nineteen seventy-seven. We have Strange Ladies, written, composed, and arranged by Axe, um, <clears throat> produced by Axe and Earl Palmer. Uh, this is a real return to form. I mean, yeah. Uh, you guys are back. <clears throat> it has a lot his, of qualities yeah. that make those 60s records so timeless. Right. He has that same approach where he's mixing kind of the sort of dark funk beds with the, you know, the, the very detailed string arrangements. It, ha- it has kind of his classic sound. You, you, yeah. you, you know what I'm finding as sitting here listening to you two guys? I didn't realize how much Axe had done, you mm-hmm. know, because yeah, right. we're doing other things and stuff like that. I know I didn't do everything with, mm-hmm. that he did. But it's still his own stuff. He, it, it was always tons. Time, you know, he yeah. kept right going on, going on. Because mm-hmm. some nights he'd come into the baked potato in the seventies and just hang out all night, like you know, just to, to listen to music. Mm-hmm. And he, he liked to come. He liked to go man. into to see Sweets Edison too when Sweets was playing there. So he would go in those. Well, I'll nights. tell you, the prolific thing dried up big time. Yes. Soon. Yeah. Very soon. Yeah. So, this was a bit of a last hurrah. Yeah, um, it was. It was. Uh, a last this hurrah. record has a lot of interesting, interesting stuff on it. Uh, Muhair Extraña, remember that tune? That's a tune in five four. It's a really interesting five four because most of the time you're playing in five four, it's kind of like a bar three and a bar two, or a bar two and a bar three kind yeah. of. But this feels like it's a bar four that just like stops for a second and then goes back into. It's a really interesting uh, five four. Um, really cool playing on that. Um, Tony Palm. Great strings, great Tony strings. Tony Palm was great. Yeah. The, Tony t- Palm was sampled by uh, Lauren Hill. Mm-hmm. 
That's the one with me playing on. Yeah, yeah, yep. That's the big one. They, yeah. I guess, they gave Axe supposedly eighty grand, mm-hmm. which seems it's like a lot, right. but is not really very much. How about Terry's tune? Does that one, that one ring a bell to you? No. That one's really the centerpiece uh, song of the record. It's got by far the most streams. I think that that, that one's kind of uh, kind well, of a, a you hit know what? In the I kind of you know what my part said. Mm-hmm. Go for it. Go for it. Well, you did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember that. You know. You know what? This is kind of a sad album to me in a way because <clears throat> um, this is sort of a last gasp of creative ecstasy from him. Yeah. Before his releases became very sporadic. And his discography basically trickled to a halt. But this was it. You had like most yeah. of the great players back. Um, this one I give four and a half. I gave it four and a half as well. And every single song on it is going on the playlist. Also, Terry's tune uh, was sampled for uh, Ghostface Killer's Supreme Clientele, one, mm-hmm. of, one of my most favorite hip hop records ever. And then we move into, that's his last album of the 70s of any kind. Yeah, there's, there's really a lot of good stuff on that record. Um, that one was a really pleasant surprise. I didn't, I didn't, really, uh, I didn't really know that one before we did it's, it for the It's show. awesome. It really yeah. is. Um, and good on you, Don, for, for being there. <laughs> at, at really the right moments. I mean, yeah. all, you're on all his best records. Uh, 1980, uh, Axelrod composed and arranged a record called Marchin, which was produced by Axe and Earl Palmer. Uh, this is no good. Very obscure and hard to find. Yeah, yeah. Um, this one, it's like it, it's it, it it almost the digital. The existence of it is almost uh, it, it's like it's been scrubbed. <laughs> you can't, it's not on YouTube. It's I like, know. I had to really dig to find a copy of it to listen to. It's. Uh, have you heard it? No, no, no. Uh, yeah, this is sort of a quiet storm vibe. Well, it's kind of it. it's sort of going back to the thing where they're kind of doing jams right, more. Right. Um, Another classic sample, though, this was on uh, Ghostface sampled it again, the song Wandering Star, uh, very prominently sampled on Fish Scale, which is an even better album yeah, that's than a Supreme great Clientele. Album that I know Don hasn't heard. <laughs> 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 if any of a copy for Don, please send it in through Instagram. All right, so... March is pretty forgettable. Um, it's, it's, it's very hard to find. You probably don't need to kill yourself finding it. It's, right. It's all right. Two no, stars. No. Yeah. Um, the, I don't think there will be anything from that. And then there's the a really long gap. Do you know anything about what happened to, to him in the 80s, Don? Well, I know... he kind of stopped working. I know he wasn't feeling very well. Mm-hmm. And his, his, he was limping. You know, he was walking with a cane. Mm-hmm. He did nothing from, from know, 80 to 93. You know, he, I, he, I just think he was out of the business. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, right. he was out of the business. So oh, well, I, 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 I spoke I, to him a couple of times, but he didn't even want to come hang out anymore. You yeah, know, yeah. So. It was probably painful. I mean, if, of course. if you're that busy, prolific, and then it just fizzles. Also, um, you know, I guess he's kind of a hard-living guy at the, at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, <laughs> we all have our, you know, he had a lot of dark sides. We were all uh, young uh, ones. Uh, <laughs> and, and, I, and I think when after, he uh, through. after his son passed away, I think he, he, uh, I think he blamed himself a little bit, you know, and uh, who knows? Yeah, you know it's so tough when you're dealing with drugs like that, and 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 it gets you over, over dealing with an overdose or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to, to you know, especially if you've been there and and you got better, mm-hmm. and now you have to deal with it again. Right. right. You know. Yeah. Well, I know that in the '80s, he he uh, apparently he made three solo albums that went unreleased, mm-hmm. and then uh, along the way, he had three marriages. Uh, and a whole bunch of drug problems. 
I'm not saying, I'm not blaming the the 13 year absence on that because I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but he it's, the information about him is pretty scant. It's pretty hard to find. He apparently had a love affair with cocaine from 64 to 81, which is what I heard. Um, but he told Mojo Magazine that he never abused the drug, explaining that we never did anything but sniff it. <laughs> so, um, so Axe and his wife Terry were reduced to living in a con- condemned one-room shack. Uh, there was a great ar- article in Mojo that explained how um, you know he was actually homeless when all these huge samples start. His, his discography was ransacked by hip hop producers who then couldn't even find him because he didn't have an address. He was homeless. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's so sad because, you know, you, you, no one deserves to end like that. He spent so much time in producing music. He absolutely adored the business he was in. He loved production. He loved being able to go into that studio and, and have the, the camaraderie from all the musicians and just to be part of the action. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it fizzles. Uh, it, it, it's, it's sad, and it's, it's a sad description of how our business can, can rip you apart. Yeah. yeah, we've had a few other stories like you that. Know, yeah. it, it's, but it, it, you have to either accept it or not accept it. There's no in-between. But you gotta, you got to give the guy props. Okay? Absolutely. No, no, no. So what I'm saying is yeah. 13 years off the radar, yeah. he's sad about his exit from the industry, and then the first time he gets to make an album, he does a fucking Holocaust album. Yeah, I know. This yeah. guy is unbelievable. you got to love his balls. So 1993. He's gone back for a big concept. Yeah, Requiem the Holocaust, composed, arranged, and conducted by Axe, produced by Axe and Earl Palmer. Um, uh, from where I'm sitting, I don't, you know, uh, it's, it's like, a tough listen. So it really is. A tough I don't lesson. think you can get it. I don't think that it was. It a, was. Hard, it was yeah, very yeah. hard to find even clips of it. It's, I, it's you not know what? in a streaming. The or rumor that I heard was that Jimmy Bowen, who was done very successful, head of Warner Brothers Reprise and Warner Brothers, helped him finance that. Mm-hmm. I don't know how the hell this... Because who's, you know, who do you go to? Uh, here, I want to do an album on the Holocaust. Give me $100,000. Plus, the music itself is modern classical. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's not... It's the opposite of commercial. Uh, I give it one and a half stars. I'm not a fan of this. Yeah, record. I give it one. It's pretty tough to get through. Yeah. Um, it, and it's almost impossible to find. Okay, so then two years later, he did The Big Country, which he arranged, conducted, and produced... Uh, I'm not quite sure why anyone would really want to listen to this one. That one, I, the word inscrutable comes to mind. It's, it's a strange odd. record. It's got four songs on it and anywhere between two to five versions of each song. Um, it's more modern classical than jazz, which is to say that it's boring. Mm. But there are acts like, acts like moments that hither and thither pop through the boredom. I haven't even heard of that one. It's, it's another not, it's one no very good. hard to find. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this is kind of like we're at the end of the rabbit hole here. Because yeah, this is one kinda, star. This kind of ends on a, a better note. Than it, yeah, yeah. So this is one star, I, I think. I give it the same one star. Okay, but then a funny thing happened. His discography was ransacked by all these people, okay? And, and so the, we, we talk about why it's such a natural for uh, sampling. There's just so much drama in it, and there's, all, and there's incredible funky drums everywhere, and mm-hmm. then there are extended sections where there are breakbeats, and there are extended sections that are like... 
phrases that you can sample. It's it's just yeah. a natural. I mean, when I the, I used to own a, uh, I still have it actually. It's in here somewhere. My Akai MPC sampler. You know, the first time I busted it out to start doing some sampling, it's the first thing I threw in there was a Mac. Is that that is that what uh, DJ Shadow used? He did. The he MPC. Can, he compi- he, in fact, I believe it was the same one. The MPC two thousand okay. is how he made um, all of introducing. I think he, I'm pretty sure he made it with that and just a couple of turntables. Okay. Um, but um, so yeah, so his his record starts. He starts to get a lot of notoriety because of how uh, frequently he's been sampled and how mm-hmm. much. And uh, he sort of like uh, becomes a friend of the crate digging community. He kind of like embraces it after a bit. DJ Shadow and James Lavelle were doing a record in '98 called uh, well the project called Uncle, and the album is called Science Fiction. They asked um, uh, Axe if he wanted a remix, "Rabbiting Your Headlights." Now about that album, the Uncle album was very heavily hyped when it came out, and mm-hmm. it's it's a little bit disappointing. It's not really that great an album, right? But the Rabbit in Your Headlights is the best track on it, right? And his remix is really cool. He yeah, his remix is amazing. It's basically not really a remix. He basically just wrote a string chart for it, I believe. Right, right. And it's this, it's a kind of dark, like dissonant, you know, it, like expands the harmony of the original song. It's it's an, it's a really interesting chart. Do you know what what would be interesting if somebody? Knows where all the orchestrations are. Mm-hmm. Somebody must oh, the have the actual physical charts. The, the f- yeah. physical yeah. charts. Yeah. Yeah, because be. in those days they would send it out to a copyist. Right. It's probably in a copyist, file somewhere. You know, yeah. Or maybe Capital has a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if they used them for the uh, concert they did in 2004. I wonder if they used some of the charts. They must have. Yeah, he must have. Yeah. Um, th- then what happened is. Uh, so in, that Rabbit in Your Headlights mix, I, I give that five stars. I give that, yeah, I give that yeah. five stars too. <clears throat> um, then the in, most remarkable thing happens is that they yeah, discover the, yeah. a lost album. Right. So the Axe was going to create a third Electric Prunes record uh, in uh, 1968 based on a concept <clears throat> on Goethe's fa- Faust. Okay, so all the rhythm tracks were laid down. Um, you were on it, um, Carol, Earl, and somehow it got shelved. Um, and then in 2001, it was resurrected. He put string arrangements on top of it, and it came out as the album David Axelrod. Those old tracks were bookended by one song with a rapper on it, and then the last song with Lou Rawls on it, singing about Michael, because Lou was there when David got the call. Ah, Do you okay. remember when this record came out, Don? Were you, uh, no. So this I, came out in 2001. And it was it was from the tracks came from an acetate that were just sitting around that somebody found. And you can hear how scratchy it is, but it adds you, to you, it. You know what? I, we hardly spoke after that. I think uh, mm-hmm. um, we'll play some stuff for you. The third, maybe I don't. I don't. This, it's a re- it's a really beautiful record. It's one of my favorites favorites of his career, and it's it's. Uh, it's sort of similar to uh, his best work, like Songs of Experience, Songs of Innocence, but it has sort of a more like. A, I don't know. It's, it's a more kind of heavier and energetic kind of sound at it times. Was, it was going to be the follow-up to the, release of an oath. Right. It was going to be the next Prunes album. But it was just shelved, and he went on to do different things and forgot about it. Your work on it is unbelievable. I'll play you some stuff uh, after we're done. There's here. some great stuff on it. To me, this record is uh, right, right up there with all of his best work. It's, I agree. It, 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 I, I remember when it came out, and it was it was like a miracle. It was a miracle. <laughs> it was, because it's like uh, one of his... It's. It was almost like a posthumous record, but he was still alive. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of like as big fans as we are of his when, work. When did he pass away? In uh, 2017. Yeah, 2017. He was 85. Yeah. Um, and you know what a cool thing about this record is? He changed all the titles so they weren't reflective of the Faust concept. 
but they were giving back to everyone who had given to him. So there's um, a, a song. This is the Doctor and the Diamond. The Doctor and the Diamond that, is Dr. Kind of, Dre. And, uh, the, and the, the Shadow Knows is for a DJ for Shadow. For Land's Sake is for Harold Land. Yeah. Loved, one, loved Boy is for his son. This was him giving back, and it was, except for live at Royal Albert Hall, or Royal Festival Hall. <clears throat> it's the last album that was released in his lifetime. Now, this one, again, it's hard to find. This one, Mo Wax put it out in 2001. They're like a kind of a hipster hip-hop label. They, they you know, put out really great recordings. Um, really, really cool label. Um, but it's not on any of the streaming services, and you can't even really find it on YouTube. That's, I had, that's I had completely to, like, insane. Yeah, I had to go like pull out my own files of it from like that I had from... Uh, you have it on vinyl, don't you? Not that one. No, no? I, okay. I still have the CD. It's one of the few CDs that yeah, like, yeah. I couldn't yeah, bear, I bought to, I couldn't bear to get rid of. I give that one four and a half. I give this five. Now, uh, there, there would be a good thing for Light in the Attic to go yeah. after. Oh, yeah, yeah, somebody should put this out again. I'm not, you know. It's probably not in, in print right now. Did you ever see the thing they did on Lee Hazelwood? Yeah, like, I, ha- I have I have, the... beautiful, um, isn't it? I have the two-disc compilation. I don't have the big giant box set. Oh, I have like the box set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but well, I, have, they, I have the two-disc best of. They gave me one because they had a... Sh- they shot some of the shots with Lee at yeah. the, in the baked potato. The, that they did a great infomercial on on that thing that was out for almost a year. Yeah, it's amazing. They it's spent a, some money. They yeah, spent the, a lot of money. It's a beautiful on it. package. The, yeah. the, the, the thing That's I why had. they just re-released Nancy's thing. Right. The, the LP is on Light in the Attic. Right. Yeah, they do. They do great work over there. So um, then the, the last uh, the last album released in his lifetime is live at Royal the Festival Hall, and he does say. Uh, that he was able to pay for the that night's 26-piece orchestra with the royalties from Dr. Dre's The Next Episode. You ever played at that place, Royal Festival Hall in London? Yes, I have. Real beautiful. Yes. Really we, beautiful hall. We, we sold it out. Nancy Sinatra sold okay. it out. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. It's, it's, yeah. it's great. So do you remember the last time you talked with Axe? Or saw him? Late 70s. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Probably around the time ago. you were doing that record. Yeah, that's about it. After that... I don't think I saw him. Uh, and then the next time was when Ethan brought us all to Capitol. Well, it was, it's an interesting career. So when you look, about, look at the shape of the arc of his career, uh, I believe it would have been just sort of a straight-line trajectory of setting up mics and capturing uh, good jazz. Uh, if it wasn't for the anomaly of the 1960s where that seismic shift, shift occurred, which allowed a very unique musical presence uh, to have a soapbox. I look at it as a saving grace for Capitol Records, as far as I'm concerned. Cause yeah. I, yeah. I think most of the time, you know, it was almost moronic how, right. how everything happen, would happen up there in spite of themselves. Right. You know, you yeah, they, they gave him the leeway to make those records, and we still have them today. You know, and, yeah. and uh, so many great things happened in that, and in in those buildings in spite of themselves. You right. Know? right. So. I mean, he was good, then he was doing great stuff. And then it was kind of a struggle. I we think we talked to about this a little. That. We talked about this a little bit one of our other episodes about the idea of like postmodern music, and I, it, his music kind of meets a lot of that criteria for me. Where it, it's like a it's a blending of the genres in a way where it's not like you know it's not jazz and it's not classical and it's not rock and it's not making any of those things any lesser. It, it's the fusion. And it's also, of it. Yeah, right. But it's the fusion. But it's also not quite jazz fusion. Yeah. Well, it's it, a, it doesn't. Really it's, its, it's without boundaries. Right. Really. Right. It's the lack of boundaries. Right. It's the, just. Music. That's yeah, right. A, yeah, yeah. It, 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 you, you try and put titles on everything, you'll drive yourself right, crazy. Exactly. And, and you know what? I think he was perfect for the era that that whole thing yeah, yeah. was. The night we were recording Lou Rawls, when when uh, um, 
when Bobby Kennedy got shot at the ambassador, we were in the middle of the date. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I told you this yeah, story. Yeah, you did. And it, it was, uh, I thought he was going to call the date, and he said, no way. Yeah. And I got in an argument, and then he straightened me out because, he, your dad. Uh, because of my dad had mm-hmm. the same problem right. with Bobby Kennedy being on McCarthy's board. You right. know, yeah. you forget about things like that. Yeah. You go on. But Axe, Axe was intelligent you know, and, and smart about all those things. He never really got a chance, you know, to voice his opinions unless you really knew him, like I did, and I think Earl did. I think he pissed Earl off too one time, and Earl said, "That guy, why, why does he do that?" You know, mm-hmm. but that's his Axe's roughness, you know. Yeah. yeah. But that was Axe. He, he, you're not going to get two different people. There's a know? sort of forceful yeah. thing to his music that seems like it was probably similar in his personality. There's yes. A, there's a sort of a presence, a strength to, uh, to to his best stuff. He also had a big heart. Mm-hmm. Behind, right. behind it all, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of there's a lot of feeling and a lot of emotion yeah. and all this stuff. So. so, so my top three of his, I, I, I would say my number three is the Electric Prunes release of an oath. Uh, number two is Songs of Experience, and number one is Song of Innocence. Mine's pretty similar. As these often are. I feel like we always say the same ones. But I have number three. I have the 2001 self-titled David Axelrod as number three. Song of Experience, number two, and Song of Innocence, number one. Worst album is The Big Country for me. Oh, Jesus. I, that, that sounds like what it is. I'm glad I never heard it. <laughs> the later ones, I'm, I mean, I could easily pick the, the, the two from the, his later period. I'm going to I'm gonna stick it to canonical prime era, and I'll go with Rock Messiah as my least favorite. Yeah, yeah, that's a... Of, of sort of his... Not not really <coughs> counting those later ones as canon or something. Right, right. But right. you but you, you could, could make definitely that say a messiah. You could make yeah. that argument. But overall, I mean, this is a guy who, if you don't know who David Axelrod is, I hope you've been furiously pausing and listening to music as we've been talking about it. If not, definitely uh, go to uh, the playlist that we've created for you and this one's an epic playlist it really can't is go wrong a with this one. ton of great stuff it's basically uh, like uh, you can't really say it's Don Randy's greatest hits <laughs> but but certainly all the best stuff on it has Don Randy on it there's no question about that <laughs> Don we love you very much and thank you guys so, thanks so much for being so here happy as, you came on. As a fun always, day fun as, day yeah. as always a pleasure to chat with you you think this was fun wait till we chop down on sandwiches <laughs> at Felipe <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, our fans out there, be sure to uh, tell everybody about our show. Follow Check us, us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Right. Um, you smash know, that like button. Smash the like button. Subscribe. Tell everybody about us. Um, we will. We are here every Monday, and uh, we will see you next week. And until then, see you on Discography. Bye bye.